Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Break the Cycle. With me, your host, Joshua Smith. I hope everyone is having a wonderful fr- Friday evening. Thank you so much for choosing to start off the weekend right with uh, with me. Of course, I'm working all weekend, uh, so it's not my weekend until next weekend when I get three days off in a row. Uh, but I have an awesome show for you guys, and I'm very excited to have my friend on. But let's start with some great sponsors. Of course, we have Lauren Zotti. Dot coffee for all your delicious Italian coffee needs delivered directly to your door. Bring the taste of Italy home. Use BTC at checkout for a 10% discount. And of course, toplopsta.com, the man, the myth, the legend, my good friend, uh, the man who's going to make it up out of the, the hood in New York. Uh, he does all the great uh, graphic content that you guys see for the show, including this great uh, Wear the Mask Joe Biden shirt that I'm wearing tonight. Uh, you can get his gear for 10, 10% off by using BTC at checkout. Um, or you can join the Patreon, subscribe star, or become a channel member here on the YouTube, which is, has all kinds of perks, different ones. All of them have different perks. Uh, but one of the great perks is you get into a private discord server where top lobster drops his new designs two weeks before they go to the general public at a 30% discount with the code that you can only get in that discord server. So definitely check it out. He's the man. Uh, and you can support the show and his work by supporting the show. And, of course, executive producers of the show, AnthemPlanning.com, for all of your emergency and crisis planning needs. Check them out today. See what they can do for your business, home, or personal life. They're doing a wonderful job that the uh, government sucks at much cheaper and much more efficiently. Guys, we got an awesome show for you tonight. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had Austin Peterson on the show. Uh, if you know, he's the the creator, the president, whatever you want to call it, of the uh, the Libertarian Republic, um, and he holds some crazy views on uh, the the World War II, but especially the atomic bombs that we dropped uh, on on uh, Japan. Um, and my guest tonight is actually a writer for the Libertarian Republic, friend of mine. Uh, and probably one of the uh, the coolest guys I've ever met in the internet web sphere. Uh, his name is Guy Squiggs. Sir, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Josh? Oh, you know, I can't complain. I got some filters on the uh, on the audio, so hopefully if, if anybody's having a problem hearing you, they'll let me know in the chat. But, uh, man, so I hit you up because uh, I had Austin Peterson on the show. We talked a little bit about the the uh, atomic bombs in in japan um you messaged me and said i'd love to come on and, and give kind of you know i have a much different take on that obviously um and uh and so i agreed to it because you know you're one of my favorite people on facebook and, and now twitter as well but you're no longer on facebook um but before we get into the world war ii stuff and the uh and, and the, the a-bombs and it, it is the 76th anniversary uh today of the of the bomb landing on Hiroshima uh so uh first of all I want to compliment your tiara it's very beautiful thank you you're welcome it's my daughter's but I wear it sometimes also yeah. for toilet selfies yeah if you're if you're drinking or whatnot you know why not uh but uh 
<laughs> but before we get in, before we get into all that other important stuff, why don't you just drop your your journey, man? Like what, how you came to Liberty. Uh, I know you hold some different views than libertarians. I've seen them, you know. But how did you get to Liberty, man? What what was the journey you took? So for me, it was you know starting out as you know a, a young Republican, um, and and here you know um, where where I'm at in Washington State, you know in a in a suburb of Seattle. I mean, being a, a young Republican is the counterculture. And so I, uh, I was, you know, a kind of a young Republican. Uh, and then in uh, 2008, you know, when there was the, the great big, you know, explosive exchange between, you know, Ron Paul and Giuliani. Um, then at that point, you know, I, I, I listened to Ron Paul and then, you know, like his ideas really, you know, made some sense to me in 2008. And I kind of started to lean in that direction. Of course, Ron Paul dropped out. Um, embarrassingly, I ended up voting for McCain in, for that 2008 election. Sorry to say it, but you know, I'll admit, I'll admit my faults. I did that. But uh, when Ron Paul ran in 2012, that was, you know, where the liberty messaging really started to click. Um, so, you know, I, I did I did not roll over and vote for Romney by by any means in 2012. I actually wrote in Ron Paul that year and then come around to 2016. When um, when Rand Paul was running, I was supporting Rand Paul. Rand Paul dropped out. But with the remaining people in the field, it's like, you know what? Um, you know, I kind of. I need to start kind of looking elsewhere here, you know, and, and that's where I really kind of started to go further down with those Ron Paul views. And that's where I landed with supporting Austin Peterson and uh, Austin Peterson. You know, even though I'm um, even though I'm debating his take about World War II and the and the Hiroshima bombings on the show, Austin Peterson is actually a very good friend of mine. Um, and I, I do write for him at uh, the Libertarian Republic. And uh, there's a couple of cool aspects for that because Austin is also, you know, an AMFM morning host for uh, KWOS in Jefferson City, Missouri. So if I if I write a banger for the Libertarian Republic, well, then I've also written content for his morning show, and uh, he'll actually have me on to discuss my piece. And uh, an AMFM morning show, you know, in Jefferson, Missouri, an early morning show in Jefferson City, Missouri is super early morning here on the West Coast. And I've, I've never actually slept through. Um, I've never actually slept through one of my segments. But there have been times where I, you know, I missed the phone alarm, but the actual phone call woke me up. And it's like, guys, Squigs, you're on the air. <laughs> you know? But writing for the Libertarian Republic has been, you know, really cool. One of my really good friends, uh, a really unique guy that I met working at the Libertarian Republic is a guy named Caleb Shoemate um, on Twitter. His Twitter handle is FreedomsBeard92. Um, and if you really want to see some wholesome content, this is the guy to follow. So he is a writer with cerebral palsy. So uh, he's wheelchair bound. He's never been able to use his legs his entire life. Um, and, and, you know, he writes about libertarian philosophy for the Libertarian Republic. And even having cerebral palsy doesn't stop him from going to the gym. I mean, of course, he gets a pass on leg day, but his arms like his arms are three times the size of mine. Like he, he works out his upper body. So, you know, I've always told him that, you know, when we meet, you know, someday, you know, we're, we're going to play a game of punch punch where we take turns punching each other in the arm to see who taps out first. And of course, it's going to be me because his arms are humongous. Um, but, you know, I am willing to take one for the team for wholesome content like that. Um, 
But yeah, so um, and so with the Austin Peterson run, though, that was where, you know, I started to fall, you know, more into into libertarian circles. Um, you know, I, I, I know, you know, some folks don't like minarchists, but, you know, that's where I kind of tend to follow things. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've long said that, uh, you know, there's a place in this movement for minarchists and anarchists alike. Uh, we're on the same journey. Some of us just want to get off a few exits early and I'm OK sure. with that. Yeah, we're we're all trying to move the needle the same direction, right? I'm I'm trying, you know, to move the needle the direction that you want it to go. You just want that needle to keep moving, you know, you know, past where, you know, where where I want it to stop. But then again, you know, like, you know, if it if the needle stops with me and I'm content, or you know, and I say, you know, it can work if we push it further. Well, then, you know, I might start to lean more in that direction. So. Sure. You never know. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about it's all about the uh, the 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 best ideas prevailing. I talk about this a lot on the show. How you know we're in a society that doesn't let the best ideas prevail because of the shitty government we have. But you know, if we if we were able to roll the the uh, size and scope of the federal government back to just the Bill of Rights, uh, I'd be happy to argue that we could go smaller once we get there. You know what I mean? And that's kind of that's kind of how I look at it. Um, but it, it, we're not even close. I mean, we're so fucking far away from even that. It's like, what's the point in, in arguing? We all know we need to end the wars. We all know we need to audit or abolish the Fed at the very least audit. Um, you know, we all know the drug war is a farce. We all agree on this shit. Even, you know, whether you're a, a constitutional Republican or, a, or a, 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 a minarchist or an anarchist or a night watchman guy, we all agree on these, these same tenets. And so it's like, it's stupid to keep arguing it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth when it's like, dude, can we get some influence and, and make some changes yeah. and then we can argue? I mean, you really can't look at a guy like Thomas Massey in the U.S. House and say that he sucks. Like, no, he's he's, he's like the best member of Congress, you know, in, in the House. So, you know, I mean, yeah, he's a Republican, but, you know, he definitely leans our way in a lot of things. So, yeah, you know, I'm 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 not going to I'm I'm not going to bite Thomas Massey's hand. I'm going to, you know, applaud what he does. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely, uh, you know, I like a lot of the stuff Rand has done. Um, but I, I like, mm -hmm. I like Massey way better than Rand. Wait, yeah, wait. absolutely. It's not even close. Uh, and then Rand, 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 like, it's like, I'll be like, Rand, you're doing a great job, man. This has been a great couple months. And then he'll do something like he did yesterday where he dropped a fucking tweet and was like, uh, you know, there's consequences to talking badly about police. And it's like, God damn it, Rand. Why do you, why? There's no consequences for saying something that hurts your feelings. Let's, let's not do that, Rand. Yeah. 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 Something like that. Yeah. Is, is really disappointing and kind of like where it's just kind of like, yeah, you were going up and up. Oh man. You're, you're going to have to do some more stuff now to make up for that. Yeah. So. The, the apple, the apple fell a little far from the tree there in that, in that, uh, that scenario. But man, let's talk about world war two, bro. So you you have a you have in, more interesting take than some people. You're obviously uh, have been immersed in Japanese culture in your life. Um, I know you married in. You're one of the proud libertarian uh, guys with a with an Asian wife. Have you joined the Have you joined that Facebook group yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not on Facebook, but uh, but yeah, you know, I I am one of those uh, libertarian guys who who has a waifu, um, and I'm everybody's favorite weeb who isn't actually a weeb. Sure. Um, so that's that's kind of funny. You know, it's like I hardly ever watch, you know, any anime whatsoever. And, you know, there's some kids shows on in the background, but anime has never really been a draw to me. 
Um, you know, although I do like some of like, you know, like the, the Miyazaki Studio Ghibli movies just, you know, for their own film value. But like, you know, some people that will watch like, you know, like, like shows that have like 500 episodes, it's like, you know, I, I don't have the attention span for that. I don't even have the attention span for something that's like 30 episodes. Like, I'm just not going to do it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not actually a weeb. Um, well, that's good. When I started yeah, to get interested in, in Japanese culture, it, it actually it actually was because of television. Uh, there was an old miniseries in the 80s that my dad had recorded on VHS called Shogun. Um, and so some folks might remember that. It was um, uh, based on the novel written by James Clavell, which was kind of like historical fiction, but not really. Um, kind of, kind of a just a lot of embellishment of events, but it was it was a really good story, um, and the book was like sixteen hundred pages, and I read that in high school. But that's what uh, initially got me interested in Japanese culture was was Shogun, and um, that was based off of the real life Shogun who had a dynasty that lasted for two hundred and fifty years, the uh, Tokugawa dynasty. So the first Shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu. He pretty much transformed Japan from being, you know, that that territorial, you know, feudal civil war era and pretty much conquered everything province by province and was uh, a military dictator general. Um, and his dynasty lasted for about 250 years. And so it's actually kind of interesting when you think about it, because he actually really did run like the literal definition of fascism. But it really did have its place at that time for, you know, unifying a country racked, you know, by civil war that was completely war torn and where you had, you know, like 18 different micro communities all at war against each other. So that actually worked on that scale. You know, of course, it doesn't have any place in modern society. Um, but but unlike communism, fascism actually did work once. Yeah. So. Well, it probably would have worked a couple more times, too. Who knows? Uh, but it's so funny because now you're canceled. Uh, that's you know it's it's funny you I, have you read have you read Mises have you read much Mises? I have not read too much Mises. Okay, so no, I, most of the stuff that I read is like Hazlitt and Soul. Sure, sure. Well, so Mises, you know, once quoted that uh, you know uh, fascism at the time worked or something. I mean, he he that it was like something that simple, right? And this man has an entire body of work, just so much work, right? And it's that one quote. That everybody holds against him, but he didn't even mean it like I wanted to be a part of fashion. I mean, the guy, the guy literally uh, escaped, you know, Nazi Germany. He didn't want to be a part of fascism. He just said that at this at this time he understood why it was being used and 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 that you know for the time that's you know probably saved the day for that place. So it sounds like another situation just like that. Um, but but let's uh, let's talk about World War Two, man. Sure. Let's. Uh, so so the Japanese were pretty fucking savage, dude. They were. They were pretty savage, um, you know, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and get my 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 hot take out of the way here right now. Um, so, you know, the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor happened because we placed sanctions, you know, on Japan over, you know, their invasion of the Koreas and of China. Right. Um, so I, I do have sympathy for the Korean side of things. Right. Um, I, I don't have an answer for that. There's no silver bullet. Uh, but, you know, maybe we, we really shouldn't have put sanctions on on Japan because, like, when we look at, like, what China has turned into today, maybe China would be a better place if they were polite and spoke Japanese. That's my base take. Yeah, well, and they might not be communists. I don't know. 
Right. Japan's Japan's pretty capitalist, right? Yeah, Japan is Japan is definitely pretty capitalist. Sure. So yeah, no, no. So yeah, I guess now that I got you know that that fun take out of the way, say the controversial thing first. I guess we can get to it. Yeah, absolutely. So so they they were pretty savage. Obviously, Pearl Harbor it was a response, and and you know there's there's a lot of speculation that our our president at the time knew about Pearl Harbor, knew that it was coming, and kind of let it happen so that they could justify, uh, you know, going to war with Japan and or just I mean getting involved in World War II in any yeah, yeah, any he, means. Yeah, he wanted to go to war, um, but he could not sell it to the American people. So there has been you know some speculation, you know, that they may have you know intercepted intelligence. Um, I mean, I mean, of course, you know, Japan intercepted plenty of stuff, so I don't see why we wouldn't have been able to. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of when you look at like, you know, like a history of behavior where America has sort of favored uh, catalysts that allow us to, you know, launch into larger conflicts. You know, that does fit the bill, you know, of other things that we've seen. So, you know, could that be an earlier example of that? You know, I say maybe. I, I think that's going to be a question that probably bothers me for the rest of my life, because I don't think I'm ever going to get, you know, a concrete answer, you know, to that question of did we know uh, about Pearl Harbor, you know, in advance and allow it to happen um, as a means of launching into the Pacific War and then, of course, you know, into Europe. Um, but it's one of those things that, like, you can't prove like a negative. So it's kind of like. The only way I would ever be satisfied with that answer would be if it was proven that that was true, that it did happen. Um, so it's just going to be something that I'll probably just be speculating for the rest of my life as being a reasonable possibility. Sure. And well, and here's the thing. I mean, you know, we can all we can all remember a time in 2001 where there was a great catalyst to go to war in the Middle East. And uh, even me, you know, I was a 17 year old kid. Uh, who had no intentions of going off to war until 9-11 happened. And then it was like, hell yeah, let's go fight some terrorists. And, uh, you know, that. and then within uh, within a year, I was in Iraq uh, or in the Gulf dropping bombs on Iraq uh, from our aircraft carrier going, what the fuck are we doing in Iraq? Why are we, why are we even here? You know, and uh, and so that was that that had a lot, you know, you could see that these things happen. I mean, you know, it's we know about a lot of lies that have been told. Uh, to get us into war. We know we can, we can clearly go see the, you can right now Google the Afghanistan papers and see 100% 20 years ago, our government lied us into a war that mm -hmm. our longest military uh, conflict in the history of America, we were, you know, they made rosy pronouncements to, to put us into that war, knowing that we were never going to win it. There was no way we could win that war. Um, you know, you yeah, got drink now. So, you know, it's like you're drunk, go home. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Well, and, and, you know, you got the Gulf of Tonkin. You got all this shit that happened that we look back on and go, hey, uh, we know that these were lies to get us into war. How many times how many times are we going to fall for it? And, and the, the same thing is, it, well, and the, and the thing is, you know, a new generation comes up every 10 years, every 10 years, every 10 years that don't know shit about it. They just don't know anything right. about it. So, yeah, yeah of, of course, that could be used as a catalyst. I mean, have to go into the military that that we're not even born yet. So. Right, exactly. Well, and that's, you know, when I joined the military uh, at 18 or whatever, I mean, that was 20 years ago, you know, and that right. was that was when the war in Afghanistan started. That's when the war in Iraq started. And uh, there's kids joining today that weren't alive when I joined. Right. And now, like, I was I was class of 2002. So September 11th, 2001 happened at the very beginning 
of my senior year of high school. So, you know, it's kind of like I, I, I watch people, you know, in my generation sign up as like military recruiters were coming into the lunchroom, which was new to us, which was something that, you know, we had we had never seen, you know, like military recruiting presence you know, in our own school cafeteria, that had never happened. Uh, but then that started happening that year. So it's kind of interesting that like our generation in particular has a very unique perspective on that. Yeah, it was it was really crazy for me, too, because I, you know, I, I joined the military after 9-11. Um, and, and technically, we weren't at war yet, right? Like we weren't technically at war yet. Uh, not any huge wars that I thought we were I was going to be involved in. And I remember they marched us to the drill hall in boot camp sat us down and said, you're all going to war. Everyone in this room will be going to war. And I'm going, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, oh shit. Uh, well, that's real, I guess. All right, here we go. You know? Um, and then, you know, of course I was in the Navy, so I wasn't like, you know, fucking some hard ass, like grunt or something. I fucking, I sat on a, on a ship in the middle of the, uh, the USS Constellation in the middle of the Persian Gulf. And we just, you know, dropped bombs from afar. hundred million pounds of ordnance actually is, or hundred million tons of ordnance on Baghdad. And that's, that's, my first red pill, right? Especially on the military industrial complex and these needless, endless wars. That was, that was it for me. But, um, so let's, let's go back to world war two a little bit. Okay. So, so the Japanese, uh, Pearl Harbor happens and, uh, we just decide that we're going to wipe a couple cities off the map. Where do you stand on the A-bombs buddy? So where, where I stand on the A-bombs, I think there's a couple of different questions that, that you can ask there. Um, you know, I think that you can actually have different answers to a couple of different questions when you, you know, try and put yourself into the shoes of the time. And then when you're looking back in hindsight, <clears throat> you know, like if you ask yourself, like at the time, was that the right thing to do, you know, based on what we knew, someone could say yes to that. Right. Someone could. Um, but then that exact same person where you could say, knowing what we know now, though, in hindsight, could that have been avoided? And that same person, you know, could also say, well, yes, that that is true. It's actually reasonable to hold, you know, both of those positions, um, you know, especially where, you know, we, we have access to information and you can really see, you know, where things unfold. But, you know, some people really will dig their heels into the ground and, you know, look for ways, you know, to justify that because we're, we're always told the same thing in school. Um, and that's that, Japan never would have surrendered without dropping the bombs, that, that that's what ended the war. And I, I don't believe that to be true. And that's a lot of people that say that don't even actually know where that idea comes from. That idea actually does come from somewhere. Uh, but I think what it comes from actually discredits that idea. And, and I'll definitely be explaining that. But a lot of people will just put down that whole bare assertion where it's like, you know, because I said so because that's what I heard. Japan never would have surrendered without the atomic bombs and they just dig their heels in. And then they'll kind of look for, you know, little instances to kind of, you know, justify it. Um, but, but there were actually, you know, attempts by Japan, you know, to surrender prior to the atomic bombings that, that we um, did not honor. Um, so that happened, I believe, actually on June 4th, uh, when a memorandum to the president actually um, actually hit the president's desk that said that uh, Japan wanted to unconditionally surrender. And, and this was this was June of 1945. So just a couple of months before the A-bombs. So um, but of course, you know, we had those in the works and we were going to use them. But um, so 
1945, on June 4th, the president was aware by a memorandum on his desk that Japan wanted to surrender, and they only had one condition. Uh, and that condition was that they wanted to retain the emperorship, right? One, to save face, and, you know, two, um, they, they said in that memorandum to the president that the emperor cited um, wanting to avoid chaos and communism. And probably, you know, what, what they mean by that quote is because they were probably well aware of the fact that, that Stalin was, was going to invade. Stalin had already wiped out the Japanese forces in Manchuria and China and, and was poised uh, to invade Hokkaido. So, you know, Japan wanted to unconditionally surrender, but just, you know, keep the uh, the existing the, the existing emperor. But of course, like that was also smack in the middle of the Battle of Okinawa. So everybody knows the Battle of Iwo Jima, right? And the Battle of Okinawa, where we have our, our military base, you know, in Japan now, uh, was what happened right after. Um, so um, the Battle of Iwo Jima ended in March, and then we went right into Okinawa, and that battle lasted until the end of June, and the Japanese emperor actually wanted to surrender during that battle, uh, but that battle still continued nonetheless, and so I think that there's, you know, some some aspects where if you say that, like, if if you say that, like, okay, maybe we could have ended the war without dropping the bombs, then at some point you have to kind of say, well, then wasn't, you know, continuing to fight that battle of Okinawa a mistake? Uh, because that was actually like the third bloodiest battle in world history was the Battle of Okinawa. Um, so I, I think that there's some moral implications there um, where they where they did not recognize a surrender attempt. At, and they and they kept that battle going, and then of course, you know, dropping the bomb on uh, August sixth. But what had actually happened was, at the very end of August, um, they, the, the the Potsdam Conference they uh, had drafted, you know, an unconditional letter of of surrender for Japan for Japan to agree to, which was basically identical, with one extra condition was that they had to allow the United States to rewrite their constitution and their government, right? That takes some thought um, because, you know, they pretty much have to wonder, you know, how is this going to change our way of life, right? Letting another government come in and, and write all of your laws, right? That's, you're, you're not going to be able to, you know, make a decision on that. Imagine course, a country telling us that we had, that we were going to do that for us here. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Imagine, yeah. Imagine a country saying we're going to rewrite all of your laws. Um, so, but w within a week of that, you know, uh, uh, being in the hands of uh, Emperor Hirohito, we, we dropped the nuclear bombs. And so I think that there really was, you know, like, so, so Douglas MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur, after we dropped the bombs, he was actually upset that we dropped the bombs. And he said that, there wasn't a need to drop those, quote, God-cursed things. The sea blockades were already working well enough. And so the sea blockades, what that was, was a campaign both by air and by sea with submarines that blocked imports from being able to get into Japan. So basically, the sea blockades were choking Japan from food, from fuel. And, and that's really important because, like, you can't do much without petroleum today. 
But like during World War II, you couldn't do anything without petroleum. So like their ability to feed themselves and their ability to wage war was losing oxygen and losing it fast. Um, and, and with them wanting to, you know, surrender during that time as well, then, yeah, I think that 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 dropping the bombs on, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, I, I think that that was not necessary. I would agree with Douglas MacArthur. But there's also other aspects that people don't talk about very much. Like in high school, I never learned about the Tokyo Air Raids um, and the people that or the demographic of people that actually know about that most are the weebs because there was a, a movie about that in an anime film in 1988 called Hotaru no Haka, or, or in English, Grave of the Fireflies, that was that was done by Ghibli. Um, and that was, um, so that was Hayao Miyazaki's studio, but like Miyazaki, he's really big on like the redemption narrative and like the second chance narrative, you know, that type of thing, new beginnings. But like this movie was not in his wheelhouse and he knew that he wanted it to be made. So he allowed his his animation studio to make it but he was completely hands off he didn't touch it and it's not a typical ghibli movie it's pretty much one that uh is about the tokyo air raids where it kind of goes through these cycles where it gives you hope and takes it away then gives you a little bit more hope and then takes it away you know and they pretty much you know really emotionally connect you to this like little three-year-old girl named setsuko uh, and then they rip your heart out like it's it's not a fun movie. Um, it's, you know, not not a Ghibli movie, but those Tokyo air raids, those actually killed more people than nuclear bombs did. So this is kind of where we're going to be getting into the like the collateral damage aspect of it, because, you know, I mean, part of the Tokyo air raids, you know, was like bombing factories, you know, like Mitsubishi. Sure. But that was only a small part of what they did. They firebombed complete residential, you know, neighborhoods and areas because they knew that people's homes were close together, that they were made of pine wood and that people had paper windows. And so basically any given Japanese neighborhood was like a tinderbox. Um, and so those Tokyo air raids that were carried out and oversaw by the general Curtis LeMay, Curtis LeMay himself said that if we did not win the war, then I would have been put on trial for war crimes. And, and imagine like being the victim of the war or victor of the war, determining whether or not what you committed was a war crime. Um, but but he said that out loud, if it, I, that that I would have been on trial for war crimes if we lost the war because of those Tokyo air raids. Sure, sure. Well, uh, first of all, first of all, uh, got a couple of super chats I want to sh shout out. Lux eight, thank you, uh, ten dollars super chat. You said at Ron Paul is the real Ron Paul. Uh, uh, I'm I'm confused. Is there is that somebody else's call sign? If it is, let me know. Um, also, Lucky Charms, thank you for the fifty dollars super chat. You rule. Like seriously, you're changing my family's life. I appreciate you. Uh, so so guy, when was it, I had always been told that after the first bomb dropped on Hir Hiroshima, that they they tried to surrender after the first bomb got dropped. Is there truth to that? No, um, they didn't. They didn't actually attempt to surrender. They were still deliberating um, the surrender that they had been given from Potsdam uh, at the end of July. Oh, I see. Okay, okay, yeah. So that's that was. I had always operated under the under the. You know, I don't know that shit. You you you've obviously studied a lot more than I have. But but they did try and surrender. You know, in June during the Battle of Okinawa. So you know that was two months before we dropped the bombs. Sure, sure. So, yeah. 
And uh, for the people asking, yes, that's a uh, Hello Kitty tiara that uh, Guy is wearing. Check it out. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, that's his daughter's. If you missed the beginning of the show, he wears it sometimes, especially when he's drinking Rolling Rocks, right, buddy? Ah, there it is. I knew it. I knew it. That's uh, that's my buddy. Someday we're going to get together and we're going to have some uh, some Japanese scotch, man. It's going to happen. Right, right. No, I remember the uh, when I when I met you, that was in uh, Linwood at the Spaghetti Factory for uh, the convention. Um, and I had some really good Japanese scotch at that time, but you couldn't make it up to my place. But uh, we'll, we'll definitely we'll definitely make that happen at some point. Are you sick to death of pussyfooting around the truth while being constantly fed lies by news and big tech tyrants? If so, then come join me, Dan Smots, on The System Is Down, where we get weird, have fun, and dig into all the dangerous taboo topics like conspiracies, politics, religion, culture, current events, and everything your family just prays you don't bring up around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And I know that reality is scary to some people, so if you're easily offended, just ignore this and go back to making cat memes or whatever. But if you're ready to change the world for the better, come join me on The System Is down at tsidpod.com or wherever you get podcasts that's tsidpod.com because the system is down and truth is taking over yeah it was i think i was i was staying in a hotel room with ben from uh from adam kokesh's uh uh tour he was like his campaign manager some of the time and he's like do you want to go drink with uh with my buddy squigs i'm like yeah hell yeah and then we just ended up like not going for some reason and so i was like yeah and that was my first state convention too by the way Oh, wow. Yeah, that was the first state convention for my first chair run. And I ended up going to 26 states or something like that on that run, dude. It was insane. Insane. Um, but I was living in Washington at the time. But I was in southern southern Washington. I was in Vancouver, about three and a half, four hours away from you. So. Um, so so you've been in Japan a lot. I mean, you said you've been, you've been there at least six times for vacation, right? Yeah. And uh, what's the – I mean, they're, so the Japanese are very proud people. I understand why – you know, a lot of people are able to run with this narrative that they they didn't want to give up. You know, they this is the place where Harry Carey was was uh, instilled, right? I mean, um, or what do they, what do they call it there? Sepek? I can never say it right. Sepiku? What is it called? Oh, Sepiku. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if their honor was tarnished, they didn't even want to live anymore. That was a that was a normal thing in Japan. Um, but what's it like now? I mean, when you're in Japan, I mean, is, do people, I mean, is there like a lot of memorials set up from those bombs and stuff like that there? Um, not so much where I've been, but I've never been as far south as like the, as the uh, atomic bomb dome. Usually, you know, I'm, I'm either, you know, Tokyo or North, um, you know, so I've, I've never actually kind of, you know, been in those, you know, geographical areas, but I guess, you know, like. Speaking of uh, the atomic bomb dome, yeah, and this is kind of where 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 uh, where things get interesting. So, um, Barack Obama, when he was president, um, I think it was like for like the like the sixty fifth anniversary, maybe or the seventieth. I'm not sure which one, um, but uh, he actually went there, you know, and and gave a, a really good. Um, you know, address for the anniversary of the Hiroshima bombings and about like the horrors of nuclear war. And I know that that sounds, you know, like crocodile tears, you know, coming from a warmonger like Obama. Um, but, you know, and he stopped short of actually apologizing, which I think is good. Uh, and so someone that, you know, holds my view that the atomic bombings were incorrect, you know, but saying like, not apologizing to Japan is good. That sounds a little bit paradoxical. 
But geopolitics are complicated, right? So uh, there are two countries in particular that have not been able to get over uh, World War II. Um, of course, that's Korea and China. So Japan doesn't want our apology because they don't want to open up that can of worms in their region. So Japan is like they're they're over World War II. They're one of our best trading partners, a great ally of ours. They don't want our apology. It's water under the you know bridge to them. But you know if we were to like apologize to Japan, you know then Korea would say, well hey 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 now, where's our apology? Uh, you know we want we want a couple of billion you know dollars in, in reparations for the comfort women. You know and then China would say, well hey hey hey, where's our apology? We want some of your land. You know, you're you're not actually sorry unless you give us the Senkakus. You know, and then we want then we want Okinawa, and then you know we'll we'll take uh, we'll take Kyushu there at the bottom as well. And you know what? While we're at the bottom, we're just going to run that son of the bitch to the top. You know, that's China. So Japan doesn't want to open that can of worms um, with their neighboring countries, which is why they do not want an apology from us. Um, but even if you get, you know, to the fact that, okay, well, you know, maybe Japan, you know, would have would have surrendered, you know, without the atomic bombs. And kind of where I was talking about where people, you know, tend to dig in their feet is, you know, they they'll bring up kind of like really, really one off instances um, as, as to reasoning why they don't think that, you know, Japan would have ever surrendered, where it was like, well, oh, the emperor wanted to surrender, but the Japanese military wouldn't have left. Right. And some of the reasoning behind that is because there were two uh, coups that attempted to take place. Right. Uh, the first one was in 1936, and that was before we even entered the war. That was in February of 1936. Um, and uh, that one was like it was like 1400 Imperial Japanese soldiers trying to take on 23,000 uh, emperor loyalists. That didn't work out. Yeah. Right. That, that was a failed coup. And then there was another coup attempt after we dropped the bomb. So it was five days after um, after uh, Nagasaki. It was on the, the 14th. Um, so even after the two bombs were dropped, there was a small coup that attempted to take place. Uh, that as well was unsuccessful. It was failed. And like the four people that led that coup ended up you know, committing suicide. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry, two were executed, two committed suicide during that failed coup. But but to say that like they wouldn't have allowed you know Japan to surrender and then cite that coup attempt, that, that coup actually happened after Japan surrendered. So like, yeah, that that just doesn't you know make much sense. So but then they'll you know kind of start to run with a couple of, of uh, one-off incidents, um, you know, like uh, like Austin, for example. Uh, he talked about um, the uh, submarine attack uh, on California. And that's actually not the only time it happened. It also happened in Oregon, too. Um, but uh, so Japan, the first one was the um, I-17 submarine. Um, and they tried to, to fire, I, I believe it was called Elwood Oil Field or something like that. They tried to fire at a refinery. And they shot like stormtroopers and they missed everything. Um, they did manage to hit a dock and they managed to hit a pump house. Uh, but they found like artillery like one mile off of target. And that was the only time that ever happened in California. Um, and then in Oregon, um, it was the I-25 submarine. The I-25 tailgated some fishing vessels uh, up into the Columbia River uh, between Washington and Oregon. Um, and then they tried to fire some shells at uh, Fort Stevens, missed wildly. 
Uh, and then they also, from that I-25, launched a little floater plane and tried to start, you know, like uh, uh, forest fires uh, uh, by by Mount Emily. Um, so, but that didn't work out well either. And that only happened one time as well. And those were just completely failed events. Um, and, you know, it's not like that, that was happening all the time. It was Japan learned not to do that because they weren't very good at it. Um, the only instance where they actually, you know, did manage to land an attack, Austin talked about this as well, were, were, the, were the Pugo balloons, the, the great big, you know, weather balloons with bombs attached to them. And that did take out, you know, a family of five in Oregon. And that was the only success Japan had. They launched about 9,000 of these balloons. Um, they expected 10% of them to make it, uh, but only a third of that made it. Only about 300 balloons made it. And they were timed to drop their bombs after three days. And most of them had actually already dropped their payload before they hit the mainland. So, you know, we found, you know, like remnants of the balloons themselves, like in, a, in as far away as Michigan. Um, the one in Oregon, you know, that happened, that happened uh, in, in uh, 1945 before we dropped the bombs as well. Um, but, you know, that, that also was, was a relatively failed campaign and, you know, didn't work out, you know, nearly as, as well as their low expectations had hoped. Um, but are those, you know, reasons to, to, to nuke, you know, an entire city as well? Uh, you know, I would say no, you know, and uh, where you try to say that, you know, like when you talk about like, like the moral argument where, you know, Austin was talking about with Hornberger, where Hornberger admitted that that uh, that collateral damage is a product of war, that it's going to happen, you know, in war, but then condemn it. You know, you know, he said Austin said that Hornberger lost the moral argument there, but that's not really losing the moral argument. Um, where the moral argument comes into play is after you recognize that that something is going to happen, because by track record it always does, we should be limiting that as much as possible. Sure. If you're not actively working to limit that, then you are losing the moral high ground. Um, dropping an atomic bomb is the moral low ground. That's, well, I, that's I had a that. huge problem with that part of, uh, of Austin's. I mean, that was probably my biggest problem with Austin's argument on the show. Uh, and, and it's not a debate show for me, right? Like, I don't want to sit here and argue with anybody. I want people to, to have the free reign to talk about whatever they want to talk about and let my viewers decide what they think. Um, you know, like, like, uh, like when I had, uh, Mark Pellegrino, fa very famous, uh, uh, TV actor on the other day, um, I'm just, that's like a terrible name drop, but, but there was things that I disagreed with him on. But I gave him some info and I said, well, how do you feel about these things? I didn't want to argue with him and I didn't want to argue with, with Austin either. But that was the, that was the point that I had the biggest problem with because saying that a couple of people dying, uh, you know, a couple of casualties of war dying is akin to the, the, the uh, a mass amount of people that died due to the atomic bombs. It's just, it's not even close to the same morally. You know what I mean? Yeah. There, there really isn't any equivalency there, you know, and, and, especially kind of like when you draw the question of like, was it even necessary? Like if it was really necessary um, to save, um, you, you know, American lives and an impending American invasion, like if it was a necessity, then you can have an argument about morality. But, you know, when you answer the question of looking in hindsight, could, could we have avoided doing that and still ended the war? Where the answer, you know, clearly, you know, being yes, especially after the sea blockades, 
um, yeah, then then really, I, I think you're you're losing the moral argument there for sure. Um, but you know, there there are some aspects of World War II that people really don't know, um, like uh, like they never taught us about the 442nd Brigade when I was in school, and the 442nd Brigade was actually like the most decorated um, unit of World War II actually in American history. Um, they had something like 21 medals of honor and over 9,000 Purple Hearts. And it was an all-Japanese-American volunteer um, regiment fighting for the Americans in Europe over uh, in World War II. So these were uh, a mixture of volunteers between people that that uh, enlisted right from inside the internment camps. And then there, so there was a mixture of them and the Hawaiian-Japanese-Americans uh, who were not interned uh, largely because of their agricultural production there, you know, with, with sugar and such. But um, so the Hawaiian Americans never were interned while the mainland Americans were. So there was uh, a lot of conflict between those two groups in the 442nd initially, where like um, the mainlanders referred to the Hawaiian Japanese as the Buddha heads, kind of like they were they were still kind of like of a traditional Japanese mindset and hadn't really been westernized at all. Um, and, and then the uh, Hawaiian Japanese called the mainlanders the Kotonks. And Kotonk is a is an onomatopoeia. So like like the word bang, like from a gun is an onomatopoeia, describes a sound or when Adam West Batman uh, slugs the penguin across the jaw and they put pow across the screen. Pow is, is an onomatopoeia. Uh, Japan is really heavy in their use of onomatopoeias in their language, and katong essentially describes the sound of like hitting something that's hollow. Like you hit someone on the head, and that's the noise that it makes is katong. So they're basically, you know, saying that they're like empty-headed. But uh, those individuals um, ended up fighting um, a number of Mission Impossibles, or I guess, or were sent more or less. They were like used as cannon fodder and sent on suicide missions, but that they prevailed. Um, you know, most notably was in uh, was in the, was in the kind of a mountainous forest of, of France, where they led what was called the Banzai Charge. So that was a mission to rescue 230 Americans that had been captured by the Nazis, and there were over 6,000 Nazis in that er in that area. Uh, while the Japanese American, there was it was their mission to go rescue them. And so the bonsai charge, and bonsai is kind of like an interesting word because for the longest time we never really had any sort of an equivalent to it. So, um, you know, I always thought that like Geronimo was kind of like a, 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 a good comparison, but Geronimo is really only for jumping. And then like Starship Troopers, when I heard the phrase like, come on, you H, you want to live forever? I'm like, okay, this, this kind of, you know... Um, this kind of embodies bonsai. So that's how I used to explain it to people. But now, thanks to the internet, we have YOLO. Yeah. You only live once. YOLO. Um, YOLO and bonsai are interchangeable. So these Japanese Americans, they had been beat back. Um, they had lost ground and had been beaten back by the Nazis about five times and had be been beaten back downhill. And the night of the bonsai charge, it was like they were all demoralized. You know, they knew that they were probably all going to die. But then just one of them, you know, just suddenly ran and charged up the hill yelling bonsai, you know, with his gun. And then more of them started getting brave. And it's like one by one, bonsai, bonsai, as they ran up, you know, and it's kind of like 
like imagine like like you're the underdog and you're running up a hill shooting at some guy that you're trying to kill yelling yellow motherfucker <laughs> like how is that like that, that 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 that's exactly what they were doing and they actually won that that mat or they would they they won that battle and they rescued 210 of the 230 uh captured americans and so um i think his uh name was was uh, General Domquist or something like that um, was the general that pretty much sent him to all the suicide missions. And after the war was over, he wanted to hold like a ceremony um, for um, for like the 442nd and the and the and the lieutenant colonel um, who was in charge of the brigade, who led the brigade, you know, brought pretty much the remaining survivors. And uh, Domquist was like he actually chastised the lieutenant colonel, you know, saying. I, I told you to bring them all. Why are there so few people here? And he was like, well, the rest are dead or in the hospital. This is everyone that can be here. And then Lieutenant uh, Colonel Miller and Domquist, they met again like five years later, where Domquist knew that that Miller was was pissed off, you know, about, you know, basically being thrown into the meat grinder and how the Japanese Americans were treated like cannon fodder, even though they were victorious. So when they run in, into each other, Miller salutes the general. And, you know, Domquist, General Domquist says, you know, at ease, let's go ahead and just put all of this, you know, under the bridge. But Miller kept on saluting and wouldn't lower his hand, you know, while Domquist was holding out his hand to try and shake. And then Domquist eventually ran off. But like, how cinematic is that? Um, like, this is this is something that like, not only do like, har the, the, does hardly anybody know about the 442nd, you know, and like how courageous they were. And they signed up for this while they were being interned in internment camps and 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 dying, you know, for America. Um, but it's kind of like this would make such great movie material, aside from the fact that there really wouldn't be a single main character that lives from like beginning to end. So, I mean, you would you would have a good deal of character rotation because they were constantly having to get, you know, reinforcements. But like it's like it's like the most cinematic thing ever. It's like, yeah, yeah, Clint Eastwood should definitely take that one on. Yeah, no shit. He'd probably do a great job. Clint, Clint's a good movie maker, you know. He is. He's great. He he's one of he's one of my favorite, you know, filmmakers because he's a really good storyteller. There's um a filmmaker in Japan um that I really really like that reminds me a lot of Clint Eastwood where he he writes directs and stars in his own movies. It's a guy named Takashi Kitano. Um, some folks might remember him as the teacher from Battle Royale, if you've seen that niche movie. Oh, yes. Some, some folks might also remember him from Most Extreme Challenge as the judge guy um, that, uh, that, that used to air on FX um, in Japan that was called Takashi's Castle. But he is actually a very, very brilliant filmmaker, you know, for his own movies. Um, and uh, he really kind of like, his, his films will... Uh, leave you kind of dissatisfied because he has kind of like a that's life approach to filmmaking where like he won't necessarily resolve conflict and he won't make a sequel to resolve it because that's life. Conflict doesn't always get resolved. Um, but they're always really good and, and really thoughtful and like true to life movies, um, you know, and and, you know, very, very like they relate very, very well that that life isn't fair. So I, I think that, you know, he really is kind of like Japan's clint eastwood sure yeah if if you guys haven't seen battle royale it's definitely worth checking out it's uh it's hunger games but way more savage and and with subtitles <laughs>
Yes, it is. It is. And, and especially the dark humor that's in there, you know, where like they're changing sectors and all the, you know, kids are, you know, uh, fighting and it's like morning time and it's time for sectors to change. And then, you know, Takashi Kitano, the teacher, was like over the speakerphone where he was like, I know it's hard when all of your friends are dying on you, but hang in there. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that, that, that really dark humor was so good. Yeah, absolutely, man. I agree. Well, shit, we're getting to the end of the uh, public stream, man. You know, listen. I was like, all right, I'm going to have Guy Squiggs on. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, the, the bombing in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I don't know how long he's got to do this, but, man, you're a wealth of knowledge. I had no idea. You you know even more than I thought you were going to know. Uh, do you have this kind of knowledge about all of World War II or just the Japanese part? Just really the Japanese part. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't really know very much about, you know, the, about the European theater, aside from what I learned in school. But that was because, you know, like I always studied more on the Japanese side, you know, of history. And like, you know, I was really into that, that whole, you know, Shogun Tokugawa 250 year era, you know, with the very, you know, first like white samurai, um, uh, his, his real name was William Adams. Um, but, uh, uh the the Shogun miniseries they renamed him John Blackthorn, uh, but William Adams. I actually read the actual biography on on the real person that that sh that that show was based on, um, and yeah, it's just such like a a, a very very uh, compelling time in history uh, where I, I forgot the person's name, but even up in um, in Sendai where uh, my wife's family is from, uh, the same place that had that eleven you know or ten point earthquake. Um, there was there was actually uh, there was actually a black samurai there during like the 1600s. Oh, wow, yeah, that's wild. I think I think I I saw something about that at one point, but uh, yeah, no, uh, I don't think Battle Royale is banned in the U.S. Date Masamune. I don't remember the name of the actual samurai, but Date Masamune was was the lord that he was under. Sure, sure. Uh, no, I do not think that uh, I do not think that Battle Royale is banned in the United States. If it is, I mean, I've watched it here several times, so. It's not banned in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming on. If you stick around for a little bit, uh, we'll just a couple minutes, and then we'll do the uh, the exclusive stream where we're definitely going to talk about why Deadpool is better in Japanese. Let's do it. Yeah, uh, if for you guys that don't know, Guy went on a rampage on Facebook a couple years ago, uh, talking about why. Uh, Deadpool is better in Japanese, and in fact, I think did you at one point get Ryan Reynolds to finally re like reshare that? No, what I what I got was um, I I paid Rob Liefeld um, over Cameo, um, so the uh, the actual Deadpool creator um, Rob Liefeld, I got him to say on camera that Deadpool was better in Japanese. Oh, that's what it was. Okay, okay, yeah, we'll we'll talk more about that in the exclusive stream, guy. Where can these people follow you, support you, listen to you, uh, and 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 check you out, man? They can just follow me on Twitter, Guy Squiggs, uh, G U Y S Q U I G G S. Um, I pretty much post all of my stuff there. Rad man. Well, I appreciate you. Just give me a couple minutes, to close the show out. We'll start the exclusive stream, brother. Sounds good. All right, guys. Another awesome episode of Break the Cycle. Guy is the shit, man. Go follow the guy. He's also like a great A troll. Uh, he was on Facebook and Twitter. Now um, he, he's been one of my favorite accounts for a long time. Uh, we we've uh, we've talked privately a lot about all kinds of crazy shit, uh, but he's really cool. So go follow him. Uh, become a fan. Let's get this guy on more shows, man. He deserves to be there. He's got he's got a wealth of knowledge. I had no idea. 
Uh, but anyways, guys, check out our sponsors, Lorenzotti.coffee, for all your delicious Italian coffee needs delivered directly to your door. Bring the taste of Italy home. Use BTC at checkout for a 10% discount. And of course, toplobster.com, the man, the myth, the legend, where you can get this great Joe Biden wear the mask shirt that I'm wearing today. It's actually really funny. It says, like, wear the mask a thousand times uh, behind him. It's really, really funny. Uh, but use BTC at checkout for a 10% discount. Or join the Patreon or subscribe star guys, where you can get some really cool swag, uh, support break the cycle support me doing this all the time i've been doing five shows a week uh which if you don't know is very very hard on top of a 12 hour day work schedule and raising seven kids so if you guys can can uh support the show if you enjoy the show become a member of the patreon or subscribe star at backslash break the cycle js or join the youtube channel right here for six bucks a month where you can see all of the exclusive members only content live right after I end the public stream with every single guest that I have on the show where we talk about controversial uh, and and uh, and juicy stuff. We usually let our hair down and enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, so you could support the show that way and get yourself some extra content. Um, I, I think it's a good deal. What do I know? Uh, and of course, executive producers of the show, AnthemPlanning.com, for all your emergency and crisis planning needs. Check them out today. See what they can do for your business, home, or personal life. They're doing a wonderful job that the government has technically sucked at for a long time, uh, much cheaper and much more efficiently. Guys, next week, you know, I don't do Saturdays and Sundays. Although when this does become my full-time job, because uh, I, th- I believe we'll get the show there eventually. Um, oh, Derek Slight, by the way, thanks for that uh, that last super chat, man. I really appreciate you. Uh, but I, we will make this show the full-time job so I can spend some more time with my kids. But the the, the cool part about that is I'm going to be able to do more content. So uh, and, and soon I'm going to start recording more videos uh, that I can put out throughout the days and on the weekends when we don't have live shows. I want you guys to have more content. I support. I, I, I really appreciate all the support you guys have shown the channel. Uh, if you're here visiting, please hit that subscribe button. But next week is going to be a lit one on Monday. We have Unicorn Daddy on the show. Uh, if you're not familiar with this gentleman, he does crazy challenges online to get people to follow his friends. It's not even te- really him. It's just his friends. Uh, most recently, he dressed up it, as uh, George Washington and went to the Hooters in uh, whiteface and stood on the table and started reading the uh, Bill of Rights. It was fucking hilarious. He only made it about, uh, I don't know, 30 seconds before the Hooters staff tried to take him off the table. And, of course, on Tuesday, if you guys haven't been following along, we're going to have a super show on Tuesday. Myself, Dave Casey from Dave vs. Goliath, Ryan the Man Dawson, based King Dawson, and Dan Smots from the System is Down podcast. Uh, all of these people that you see on this graphic are hardcore conspiracy theorists, including myself, and that is going to be an amazing show. I have not decided yet... If I want to do that stream on YouTube, uh, we may have to stream that to Odyssey uh, so that I do not lose my YouTube channel because it's going to get pretty, it's going to get pretty out there. I'm sure aliens and 9-11 and uh, COVID and all that shit. So um, if you guys can go find Break the Cycle uh, with Joshua Smith on Odyssey so that you can uh, follow along there in case we have to, in case we have to exclusively live stream there. Um, I may live stream here, live stream here if Odyssey doesn't open up some extra features to me um, uh, and then just take the video down right afterwards and just upload it to Odyssey. Um, I'm not sure, but on Thursday or no Wednesday, uh, Ray DeNaro, good friend of top lobsters. He's uh, he's ran for uh, uh, city council in Brooklyn. That's going to be a fun show. Uh, if you've been following along with the New York tyranny, it's a good one. And then on Thursday, the most based school choice advocate in the world, Corey DeAngelis, is going to be here. I'm so excited for this. 
uh, we are going to trigger some public school uh, some public school pearl clutchers on Thursday, man. It's going to be crazy, especially after all the school tyranny that's happened over the last year and a half. I cannot wait for that show. Guys, thank you so much for supporting the show, for coming night in and night out uh, to watch all the wonderful guests that I'm able to line up for you guys. Thank you for financially supporting us. I am going to take the weekend off and enjoy it. Uh, if you can, join the channel membership right now so you can come watch Guy Squigs and I talk about whatever it is we talk about in there. Uh, and also, I think there's like 25 or 30-something other members-only videos that are up for you right now. Uh, I will see you on Monday for the show with the Unicorn Daddy. But until then, don't forget to break the cycle. To explain the lyrics of my last song may seem to consent. A violent call to action in the verse in the frame, but I just spent it in Minecraft. The helicopter part was in reference to GTA 5 and the things you do. So when the violence you commit, I am not an excuse because I just spent it in Minecraft. Well, Chipper is my friend and he's constantly cold. Accusations of excitement getting totally old. Make your own choices, yeah, you have control Because I just landed in Minecraft Obviously I would never advocate force Unless it's due process and a trial, of course And if you're convicted, we will make you a corpse In Minecraft, just in Minecraft You're nothing, I mean, you know it The product is just a 